Hello everyone and welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski. And before uh, I introduce my great guests, I want to say thank you to everybody for the kind words and messages to uh, in regards to my introduction last time in which I announced the show will be hosted by two different voices next year. Uh, And I also, you know, bring this up and I probably will keep bringing it up in case people are really upset (laughs) about changes, but I won't be going away completely. Um, In case you didn't hear the last episode, I am moving forward to continue podcasting, but mainly as an interviewer, because uh, that's been really going well for me, and I want to see if I can make that the priority. So more details on that will come in the next episode, and I will be guesting on many episodes next year, so uh, don't fret. I'm not disappearing entirely. I'm just trying something interesting out for the big change. For today, however, it is my pleasure to introduce two guests from the past that have meant a great deal to me. One since the very inception of the podcast, and one from earlier this year. The first is the co-host of Row3.com's Cinecast, and has been a frequent contributor to this show, going all the way back to his first appearance on the Michael Winterbottom episode. Welcome back, Kurt Halfyard. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure to come in and get deep into one particular director's work. So, Yes, absolutely. It's been a while. I think the Soderbergh sequel episode was the last time you've been on. Yeah, that was an omnibus, though. That was a big one. Yes, it was. (laughs) Indeed. And also we have um, someone very special. Uh, Selective Viewing is the name of her blog, but she has... Joined me twice this year to talk about Hitchcock and Varda um, and has a degree in film studies. She writes for Tiny Mixtapes blog, um, and she's the incredibly smart and amicable Kate Blair. Hello. It's good to be back. Yay. I'm glad you're (laughs) back. So, okay, my friends, um, we're going to be talking about a director that only has three films to their credit. And part of me presumes this could potentially go more quickly because of that fact. But I think each of the films by Jonathan Glazer are all incredibly unique, and there's a reason why he may have won the listener's choice poll. Surprisingly so. I figured Edgar Wright was going to run away with it, because it seemed that way. Um, but he has acquired, acquired a bit of a cult 
fan base, I think, since Under the Skin came out. And I imagine listeners are very eager to hear us get to that one since there's so much to parse and analyze uh, with that film in particular. But that's not to say he wasn't making a name for himself early on. Um, You know, as like sort of a general overview, I will say that for me personally, his masterpiece has yet to come. And each of his films, I love revisiting because they become more interesting over time. Despite feeling that maybe each film has maybe one or two elements that keep it from being perfect, at least in my mind. Now, I know, Kurt, your feelings about Glazer are, are pretty... I think, I think you're of the mindset that he's made three masterpieces, if I'm not mistaken. You love all three of his films, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I, I did many years ago on... Uh, it was shortly after... Birth came out uh, on row three, so this is probably 2006, 2007, a few years after Birth. We, uh, I tried to figure out who the next, you know, I, I just saucily or maybe as clickbait, I, I, I just said who will be the next uh, Stanley Kubrick in, in terms of churning out consecutive masterpieces one after another. And, mm-hmm. uh, so, and it was pretty much at the time, it was Jonathan Glazer or P.T. Anderson who had just released There Will Be blood at the time so um yeah i'm i'm so happy that a your listeners went for something as i i still think of jonathan glazer as relatively obscure filmmaker um in terms of he has yet to have a populist hit even sexy beast as accessible as it is was not a like a runaway it it was not a pulp fiction by any means for sure um and uh yeah and I'm very happy that you uh, allowed me on to uh, vomit up as much as I can uh, in praise of this particular filmmaker. And not just his films, but I hope we can get into his music videos and his adverts as well. Uh, yeah, we'll definitely touch upon that. Um, Kate, mainly, uh, I, I decided to have you on this episode in particular just to talk a little bit about Under the Skin, your first experience seeing a Glazer film, his first two films, was this the first time you've seen both of those? It was, yeah. Um, Mm. I remember I'd heard of Birth before. I'd never heard of Sexy Beast. So my first experience with Jonathan Glazer was seeing Under the Skin in the theater. Um, And I did think it was a masterpiece. Um, I totally loved it and found it like really enigmatic and just beautiful. I didn't have quite the same experience with the other two, but I think they're very interesting and there's a lot to unpack in them as well. So looking forward to hearing what, what everyone thinks of Sexy Beast and Birth. Still there. No, don't get in the bathtub. 
experience with Under the Skin is rather interesting in that I saw it as a first date. Um, and t- t- suffice to say, it was a little awkward um, because we Glazer had- don't make date movies. No, he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Um, yeah, it's like I, I think of a-, a friend of mine who who, who took uh, – Someone on a first date to see Dead Ringers by Cronenberg, of all things, <laughs> which is pretty scary. Um, but yeah, we just had very different reactions to the film overall. Like she really had um, a visceral reaction to the third act in particular, and kind of vehemently felt that Glazer was a misogynist. Uh, I mean, she. This. I don't know what her overall reaction is now, but it was somebody that I I knew was a filmmaker that lived in Grand Rapids because that's where I was living at the time, and I just reached out to her on Facebook saying, "Hey, I really want to go see Under the Skin. Do you want to hang out?" And she was very receptive to that, but not so much to the third act, which sort of. I mean, just her initial reaction made me question my own response to it a little bit more. Um, I mean, my overall response to the entire film is that it's a near masterpiece and that I think, like, knowing her thoughts on the ending really struck a chord with me in terms of how different people can perceive what happens as being um, a little forced or a little misogynistic. However, I would not claim Glazer to be, in general, a misogynist. I think he's actually uh, a feminist. I really feel that way. I agree. You know, because even the the female character in uh, Sexy Beast is the one who blows Ben Kingsley away. So I think he keeps that in mind and allows for some female empowerment and really looks at them three-dimensionally and doesn't treat them like stereotypes in any any way shape or form include especially in birth but we'll i think get to that jonathan glazer is one of those particular filmmakers that you get out of the film what you bring into the film if you mm-hmm. want to go in with a particular slant his films like stanley kubrick and like other, uh, there's a few filmmakers that can do this that you 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 bounce your own whatever you're coming in with off the mirror of the film, and it might amplify. It might, it it might piss you off. Uh, it might ever. I, I don't even think uh, Under the Skin is a gendered film. I don't think it's designed to be there. there it's there if you want to look for it, but I don't think that's the point of the film at all. But that's that's me walking into the film. Do you think he has a point of view or an agenda, or is his agenda just to sort of? do that and like be a mirror to your sort of psychology when you're watching it. Well, I think all three of Glazer's films are about kind of the deep inner meaning that people attach to 
how they view themselves. So in, in Sexy mm. Beast, uh, you have a gangster who has done his time. He just wants to be retired and he has to come to grips with the, um, with the fact, which is represented by the bunny in the film that, that his criminal past is always going to be there brandishing an Uzi while he's trying to eat dinner. And he has to come and he has to balance that out, but he's deeply in love with his wife and he's deeply in love with his life. And in birth, you have Nicole Kidman's character, uh, which she says she's fine when she comes back into the car to um, uh, Danny Houston, so her her husband to be. She's fine that her husband's been dead for ten years, but the movie is a giant, you know, uh, pit of issues of demonstrating that she's totally not fine at all with that, and she never really is, even right to the end shot. And the third film is uh, is not even a human being and it, it's it's a it's an alien presence trying to figure out what they are or who they are or if they can identify like the, the whole movie of under the skin is an otherly being a non-gendered otherly being to identify with what human is and she starts off as looking at them as chattel uh and she's just mining them for meat or shopping and the whole movie's about shopping um and by the end, uh, she's the meat. And uh, so I don't know how you could end Under the Skin any other way. And I say that having read the novel, which totally is not like the film at all. That's it has I've a heard. totally different <laughs> ending. Uh, so, but I think the film captures the essence of it and what Glazer's doing with empathy and looking, I mean, the movie starts with the assembly of an eye, um, is is very interesting and perhaps more interesting than Michael Faber's novel that it's based on. Yeah, I think my date really um, resented Glazer's decision uh, towards the end of Under the Skin to have the predator become the prey and present humanity in the way that it does. But for me, rewatching it now... You know, what it's trying to convey, and, you know, I'm going to bring this up because it was on my mind, but in the age of Trump and sexism being even more prevalent, not that it hasn't been in the past, but even more so, it's brought to our attention, and it's something that we have to examine uh, more closely. And it was, I had a different response to what takes place in that final act. I had a, I had more of a visceral reaction, which I wouldn't claimed to be negative but the way she had. Um, but it's it was interesting to have, even for a first date scenario, very sort of different responses to where she outright hated it and refused to sort of look at the possibility of different director intent. Um, so I think what you're saying, Kurt, is very valid in that this is an experience of projection. Well, here's the, here's the thing. And you can apply it to Trump if you want to, and, and the state of the world essentially, um, is that most Oscar bait films, uh, think, um, they, they want to project a, a, a global image of, of change. And mm. that is their message. Glazer is the inverted version of that. He, he, he considers big ideas, but he does not look at the world. He just looks locally at one person, one person situation. His gangster movie doesn't give a shit about the heist. Uh, I mean, it's visually interesting, but it's not really 
what it is. Uh, birth, it, it doesn't explore. Um, it doesn't explore anything in my mind uh, outside of Nicole Kidman's headspace. Uh, it, it really, in fact, it tips its cards to say, "Look, we're not even gonna make this thing about reincarnation. This is entirely about." Nicole Kidman's perception of possible reincarnation. That's how local he focuses. And if people in the world, um, at the risk of sounding like a privileged white male, which I am, um, if people of the world would stop worrying about the global and just make their own lives and their immediate circles better, all of those circles would slowly merge. And the world, but everyone wants to hand ring in a global sense, just like Oscar bait. Movies tend to do like the big preachy speech. It's far more effective yeah. to look at one person than to try and parse what a full society is. But that's well, a movie about an alien. I think visiting Earth. Like, how can that not be global in some way? Well, you don't know the alien society. You don't. You don't know <laughs> anything true. about their society. You don't even know what they're doing. I mean, I, I would argue if you've read the novel, you can project a lot of what happens in the novel and say, oh, they just left that out. But I would. Oh, maybe you're a better judge than me in this in this situation because I read the novel many years before I saw the film. Uh, but from seeing it, uh, what did you infer the the motorcycle man and um, the 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 you know whatever the Scarlett Johansson's alien? Um, you know what what were they doing? Whom were they working for? Like what what was the purpose of that driving around operation? I mean, I still have no idea, <laughs> but it did seem like she was looking at people in sort of like an anthropological way, um, sort of like examining the men's reactions to the things they did. Um, and But I guess you're right that it was sort of, I mean, it is a microcosm. It is just Scotland that she's riding around in. Um, but yeah, as an alien visiting Earth, I think it's kind of hard not to uh, just to just step out of that sort of local view and see things in sort of a a more global way. But but everything she does, I, maybe you'll agree with me, maybe you won't. Everything that Scarlett Johansson's character does in Birth uh, pertains to little things, like the way she looks at women getting makeup put put on, the way. Um, you know, she's lectured by the bus driver to wear a coat, the way she talks with the misshapen man, like there's no, there's no global arch in all that. She's observing the tiniest, most specific details. And she then I guess can extrapolate enough. And all this is done without ever telling you anything, but that maybe she wants to give it a go. Like she wants to try humanity a little further than whatever her, whether it's anthropology or whether it's simple, um, you know, acquisition of, of dead humans for, for, for whatever purpose in the novel, I will tell you that uh, she's gathering them because it's like Kobe beef. Um, like it's Kobe beef for the alien race. So she's mm. gathering a particular uh, male to fatten up in that giant vat that you see in a much more abstract way in Jonathan Glazer's film. Um, and then their meat. There is a shot in the film where you see kind of all this red liquid going right. into this yeah. thing, um, which I guess is a is is kind of a call out if you've read the book. Otherwise, it's just a very, you know, 
2001 a space odyssey kind of abstract layer on whatever you want image i I, don't get me wrong i don't think a literal adaptation of the novel would have been better when they started making this film back in 2001 or 2002 shortly after sexy beast uh they wanted to do it with cgi and she was gonna have her skin all ripped up because she's ugly and horrible in the novel um and they went a completely different way, but they captured the essence of the book. And in that's another reason why I compare uh, Glazer to Kubrick. Although he's only adapted one book in his three movies, he's a, he adapted it in the same way that Kubrick. Almost every Kubrick film is an adaptation of a book, and they're never like the book. <laughs> he yeah. just says, "This is my version, and I don't give a shit what the book says. I'm doing this." And I mean, he's certainly pissed off people like Stephen King with The Shining, but I don't. You'd you'd be it's an interesting argument to say that any other film or television adaptation of the shining or even Kubrick or Stanley or Stephen King's novel itself is a better version than Stanley Kubrick's, which to me is the definitive version, even though he's not the primary author, but yeah, no, I think it's important for a filmmaker to put their own stamp and not necessarily adhere to the source material, but then that pisses off fans of the book. Um, You know, especially in the case of popular novels, I think that's, that's I would argue more that, often than not. That's a benefit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not a problem. Right. No, I, I'm I'm with you the on that. The book will always be the book. You can imagine yeah. whatever you want when you're reading it. The movie should be, in my opinion, capturing the essence of the book, but giving you a different a, a cinema language, not yeah. a novel language. And filtered through the perspective of this director. And you know, I think I think the only point maybe where I would disagree with the sort of micro level uh, character study approach. Yes, I think we're primarily focused on Nicole Kidman in birth without question. However, we do get some insight. You know, it's not like we're with her the entire film because there's that, uh, you know, the, the, the twist involving Anne Heche and the boy, uh, you know, to sort of get some insight into their psyches. For just that brief moment, I think we sort of veer away from Nicole Kidman's struggle and internal issues and sort of focus not so much on the grief component of the film that I think it's trying to uh, convey and capture, but also just a longing and a loneliness uh, from the boy, too. I mean, I think it's it's interesting when you learn what he's done, um, it, it adds a whole different layer other than just like is he the reincarnation or not i think it's it it brings a different um context i think to his character and what is taking place i think that's a really interesting choice to just because i know i've read a few reviews that like well that seems forced to just throw that in there but i think it's i think it's a good choice on glazer's part well if you're if you look very carefully at birth we are privileged to the knowledge that Anne Hesh's character had all of these letters and she buried them and, and the kid found them and, and, and then she scolds the kid for doing it. But is there any point in the film where anyone actually tells Nicole Kidman's character <laughs> about mm. any of this? Like you take it for granted because we've seen it. Right. So I would argue that there's a privileged position. I mean, the movie's birth is about class as much as anything else. Like look at how, wealthy Lauren Bacall's like insular. I mean, they're having concertos inside their apartment. Um, And 
tellingly, the kid, uh, along with his parents, played by the wonderful Ted Levine and one of my favorite right. character actors of all time, Kara Seymour, um, they're very working class, right? He's like a tutor that comes into the rich buildings. To, so you need mm. to to have, like it underscores um, that. I mean, as sad and melancholic as um, Nicole Kidman might be, sure, you know, her basic human needs are more than met. She has a potential... second loving husband after the tragedy of the first one she's certainly not wanting for wealth or privilege or culture or or anything she chooses you know um to some extent to wallow and the movie looks at that like you know how much of it's a choice how much of it is pure unconsciousness yeah it examines that and i i again it's probably projection but I, i more or less focused on the grief component only because i've suffered you know, a, a huge loss in my life. So I think that's what draws me into the film. I think the film captures that very well. But we should go ahead and start from the beginning. I think it's <laughs> it's very we easy like to, to sort start of start in media res here. We're just jump in and then we'll back out. Yeah, <laughs> it's it, it's easy to sort of tie them all together because I think um, he has a similar intent with each film, but they're all executed very differently. Mm. Um, you know, I there's like elements of alienation where characters are kind of ostracized either because of their behavior or due to their very nature. Um, I think that's something that he really understands. And I don't know if he's had personal experiences, but I think most people have had moments of alienation in their life. And I think um, each of the films capture that quite well. But um, at the very beginning, he started out making... Um, television advertisements and music videos. I think what people might know him best from, maybe, is the Jamiroquai's virtual insanity video, where he's sliding around the room and just um, space and gravity sort of defy themselves in this really interesting way. There's also the Street Spirit video by Radiohead that I love. You know, he just had a really interesting visual eye early on, much like other directors who started out in music videos, uh, Michelle Gondry, David Fincher, um, Spike Jones. But I just, you know, early on, I think he really focused on design, and I know he was a theater major, but clearly... An innovator right from the beginning. Isn't that Jamiroquai video like one of the most watched videos? Like even now, it's, I mean, the band has no real cultural cachet at this point in 2016, but that video has completely like outlived. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not much. No, I think think I've never seen it till today, but (laughs) I think I might be maybe a little young for Jamiroquai. Sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, well, that I, that video won awards at the time, and it was very ubiquitous. And I think people still go back to it just for the sort of uh, just technical wizardry behind it, and just 
the kind of uh, inventiveness that well, Glazer brought to the song. Like the film. Stanley Kubrick, like P.T. Anderson, even like uh, Quentin Tarantino, Jonathan Glazer does do a shocking amount of his quote unquote special effects in camera. Right. As opposed to copious amounts of computer graphics. And that Jamiroquai video, I mean, it's almost like Hitchcock's rope. The actual <laughs> cuts are actually kind of clumsy. Like, it just kind of pans up. Yeah. And then it pans down. Anyone who knows film says, oh, they're setting up a new shot. Um, but all of the conveyor belts and everything are are done, like, practically. In the same way that Kubrick cranked around the... Uh, uh, you know, the jogging sequence in 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, or for that matter, Christopher Nolan with the uh, Inception kind of thing, although Nolan embraces a lot of CGI. Um, I, yeah. I like the in-camera stuff. I think that half of the stuff in Under the Skin is is uh, like the man underwater and stuff is is actually done with inflatable things. It's not done with CGI. I, I appreciated that in this day and age. Yeah, I think Michelle Gondry, too, uh, I mean, he he really stood out in the world of music videos early on. He's and, more of an animator, though, right? Like a yeah, collagist or an animator. He, he did like some, you know, camera trickery. Like one of his Foo Fighters videos is kind of like an homage to Evil Dead 2, where it's got a lot of playful uh, whip pans and crazy zooms and things like that. And then there was also one of his earliest videos was for this one hit wonder Lucas, Lucas with the lid off in which it's all one unbroken shot and it's done in very, very clever ways. Uh, and Michelle Gondry is just one of those guys who constantly says, I want to do everything in camera, even if it sort of uh, seems impossible because there's like shots in eternal sunshine where Jim Carrey was like very, very angry at Michelle Gondry trying to convince him that certain shots weren't going to work. And so Michelle Gondry would just want to prove him wrong that he could do it. So I think I think Glazer sort of shares that sentiment in let's try and make everything practical and organic, even if it takes three years, which is kind of what it did for filming Under the Skin. Like, it took that long for him to sort of piece it all together, have all the elements uh, come together, and... I think to the point where the even the score for that was done to the film with the with Micah Le- Levy, I believe, being live in the sound booth with uh, Glazer. So it, that that adds an interesting element in terms of doing things unconventionally for something like film composing and for Under the Skin. Um, but his first film was Sexy Beast, um, a pretty good calling card if there ever was. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's he's a visually precise artist, and you know, from the opening credits on, you know, you're in the hands of somebody whose main interest is in vis- visual language, as opposed to, well, I mean, this does have a lot of dialogue, unlike the other films. But I think it's, you know, it's, I would compare it to like something like what Soderbergh did with the Limey or Nicholas Winding Refn did with drive. Like they're genre films, but they're done with this formulistic playfulness and a flashy style that maybe calls attention to itself. Like maybe a Danny Boyle film would, but it's a less conventional by the numbers experience 
even if the story and the script isn't really anything we haven't seen before when it comes to the world of gangsters and the last job. Um, but yeah, I, I like it more and more. I see it for sure. I think there's kind of like a, a beauty to the inertia at the beginning. And then all of a sudden there's this disruption from the boulder, obviously foreshadowing the arrival of one Ben Kingsley. So I, I really do appreciate a lot in this film, but it's still to me a debut film from, from Glazer. Bloody hell. I'm sweating here. <sighs> Roasting. Boiling. Baking. Sweltering. It's like a sauna. Furnace. You could fry an egg on my stomach. Well, actually, I really liked it. Um... And for, I think for a first movie, it was really well put together. Um, like he really, it felt very cohesive. Um, and I really liked, I think Kurt mentioned this earlier, how it's a gangster movie where nothing really happens. It's yeah. a gangster movie, like only in name. And it's more like a character study than anything else or sort of uh, an examination of like, I don't even know, uh, what sort of bad isn't isn't the hardest question in life to answer are you happy isn't that the hardest question to answer honestly uh like you know to have it's a a tough question to answer right and isn't that what the movie's asking uh that's yeah that's a good point and i'm I'm guessing that's part of it. I don't know if it's like the overall thesis of the movie. I'm not sure. Hmm. I didn't mean to derail you. I just oh, that's okay. if 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 there's something that that movie's about, I, I think that's and it, you it didn't have to be like you said, it didn't have to be gangsters. It could have been right. lubricant salesmen. Um it could be it could it could be any thing, any endeavor that you leave uh, because you're satisfied with what you did in that field and someone wants to pull you back in. I, th- for some reason, maybe it's the Godfather trilogy that that started this, like, you never get out. And so Gangsters maybe was the most natural fit, but it could have been anything. Yeah, well, I, maybe it's about maintaining the happiness that he feels that he's achieved, you know, because, like, he wants to sustain his retirement bliss with his you know, wonderful wife and the, the, the land that he's chosen to embrace and call his home is very different to, to where he um, originates from. And I think he wants to maintain that and not have any disruptions to it. So maybe it's about maintaining that contentment that he feels at the very beginning. Kate, what do you think? Well, I think what struck me most about this movie actually was Ben Kingsley's character. Um, I'm not sure like any profession would have a Ben King, like the Ben Kingsley character who just like won't take no for an answer. And you're like, he's this sort of evil dude. Um, And like that performance from him is just insane. Um, Another thing that I really liked about that movie. Um, So... I don't know. I mean, I don't know how like being happy fits in or how that approach to this movie fits with Ben Kingsley's characterization to me. Um, 
or if it's just a separate part altogether. But my takeaway from this film was just like, uh, Ben Kingsley is terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Understandable. I don't know. What did you guys think of that character? Well, you go ahead. I think that the genius of Sexy Beast, and I fully think that Sexy Beast is my favorite of the three films. Uh, I I don't, but I always distinguish what I think is maybe the best or most provocative and what I personally can watch over and over again. When I watch Under the Skin, that's a lot to take in and I got to take a breather Mm -hmm. after it. Mm -hmm. Um, And Birth, I, I do find Birth to be soul crushing like i that performance from N- nicole kidman is it, it destroys me every time i watch it uh but i can watch sexy beast back to back to back to back to back I, and while while i find don logan or ben kingsley's character terrifying the genius right before sexy beast even starts is that he cast ray winstone who is known for playing like the most horrible human beings on the planet. Like if you've ever seen uh, Tim Roth's uh, The War Zone, uh, like, oh my God, like that movie, you got to take 400 showers after you watch that movie. Um, And then they cast him as the nice guy. And then they take the guy who played Gandhi and Schindler. Right. (laughs) So that already is the guy from Deadwood. Um, yeah, and Ian Mc- well, he wasn't the guy from Deadwood when this movie came out. He was the guy from Lovejoy. But um, uh, yes, okay. but uh, nevertheless, Jonathan Glazer. It's not really. It, it's a debut film, but since Glazer was making so many targeted adverts and particular music videos, I mean, he, his most iconic television commercial was that Guinness surfer commercial which he uses the same musical Mm -hmm. cue for the heist yeah in 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 this movie there's there's a particular like driving uh he also uses it i think uh uh for the revolving door in the when ben kingsley's in the airport um and or it's ian mcshane sorry in in london they they show you this revolving door shot twice they use that music um but i i look at uh sexy beast as i don't and Kingsley's character as being terribly important to the movie. I, I I fully acknowledge that he's he's so compellingly watchable that that you know he, it's twenty minutes plus into the film before you even see him, right. and then he's gone another twenty five minutes after that. Like he's in. I mean, this movie is the almost the definitive three act movie. You have the cavorting and rabbit hunting and goofing off in Spain. Then you have Ben Kingsley. Then you have London. I I mean, and you know, or the consequences of Ben Kingsley. So the fear of Ben Kingsley, Ben Kingsley arriving and then the consequences. But I, I look at him as Ben Kingsley is less the main character or even that important character other than that. He represents a threat to gals lifestyle. And even dealing with that threat has a ripple effect that then he has to go and, and further deal with with the ripple effect. Uh, and what I look at this movie, I look at it as Ray Winstone's movie because it it really is about here's a guy he's living his personal dream. Like in a crime movie, that is that is like never has has there ever been a crime movie where the criminals like retire on a beach? He's he's doing that and he's achieved it. And it's not the Achieving that, we never see. I assume he's a 
safe cracker, which is why they want him to break into this mm-hmm. vault. But we never see his former, like when he's, they talk about it, like he's just trim, fit, healthy guy. But we never see him when he's in that. We only see him of uh, in in the in the end point where he's a little softer, he's a little more tanned, and he's definitely happy. And watching him. Like first, first off, when they're in the restaurant and he and he he comes in wanting to order the calamari, and then he's talking to his wife, and then his friends come in, and he can obviously see that they're anxious. And then at the end, when it finally sinks in that Dawn is coming, he goes back to the calamari, but it's like totally off in mm-hmm. the way he's now ordering, and he's like, "I'm having the calamari, I'm having the," and you can see all the anxiety there. I've always watched this movie as a. I wish he wasn't so anxious. Like I, I, I want that guy to be happy, even though he's a criminal right from the beginning. Um, and I want his little social circle with their, you know, barbecues and dancing by the poolside and goofing off during the day. I, I want that to, it's really rare for a gangster movie to engender empathy. And I feel, in fact, I feel that about all of Glazer's films, they're, they're hyper focused, targeted empathy. Yeah, that's, well, that's, what Ebert would cite as movies, the best movies the, are that. The empathy, the empathy machine. machine. Right, yes, yeah. Yes. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. I, I, It's funny because like, wait, yeah, Ray Winstone is a phenomenal actor and he's very dialed down here to where he's almost passive in a way. At least, you know, he doesn't externalize his rage towards Don Logan. Um, maybe it's just because he doesn't want to uh, sink to his level, but even when he, he gets attacked in bed, it's his wife who is the assertive one, the aggressive one, the one yelling back at him for attacking his hus- her husband, essentially. And I think that's another subverting of expectations. When you think of a gangster or even a former gangster, you do expect him to be a little bit more intimidating maybe not to the level that don would be but at least he would fight back somewhat i think of him as self-aware and it's not that he's backing off to don he realizes how delicate this hacienda in spain situation that he has is Mm -hmm. um I, i think everyone around him is over marinated in the fear where he is like he's actually the most confident one in the bunch and he you know i love his wife i love his wife from her intro i love the way she deals with it i love the way uh she um like stands up to dawn uh in the way no one else seems to but you can watch if you watch very closely how gal uh he he latches on to the jackie relationship he actually gets dawn to leave by shaking him subtly not by going toe to you're not gonna win Mm -hmm. in a pissing match with Don Logan. So he has to subtly poke him and he gets Don to leave. Now he doesn't get Don to leave forever, but he gets him at least off uh, the reservation, which nobody by mentioning that. And like Don even realizes when he's talking to himself in the mirror that he said too much. I think that's a good movie making in that. I think Don realizes that gal is a bit of a, like a sharp, smooth operator. And he immediately realizes that he was made a mistake in telling him about Jackie. Cause, and, and you watch gal very subtly use that as a lever to pry Dawn out of their lives. And he gets away with it until 
the whole airport uh, the whole airport thing happens, which is a lovely scene. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, just the whole interaction on the airplane or the airport in general. Well, I. I if you look her. really closely at the airport sequence, mm-hmm. uh, when Don before he gets on the plane, you know he's not flying back to England. He uses the the Hitchcockian dolly zoom. It's the most subtle uh, dolly zoom in the history of dolly zooms. Right. He's in the airport. It's a very mundane situation, and that's what Glazer does. He makes like sort of intensity out of the mundane, and he's just standing in the airport. And it's you can see the whole lobby or whatever the terminal lobby is stretching because Logan is like, what the fuck am I doing leaving? How did he get me out of his house? And then he gets on the plane and the the, the smoking of the cigarette is just a like the only thing he can think of to force like to because I think Don is a very obviously stunted and and weak character. He has to bully. He has to he has to swear. He has to he has to casually piss on his bathroom floor just that's the most childish thing ever right is him being on the floor for no reason and so this cigarette thing is a way to get himself off the plane and as a further evidence to don's childishness when he gets kicked off the plane or when he walks himself off the plane he turns around and he goes i hope this crashes it's so delightful (laughs) (laughs) he says that it's so petty it's so childishly petty and that forces him back right and and then of course then they have to deal with it in the more Deidre fashion, <laughs> the more gun-toting fashion. Well, uh, because, I- yeah, because at that point, Gal's approach isn't going to work. Right. When he comes in, it's why Deidre uh, yells at him from the bed. Like, when Don comes in and just starts beating you while you're naked in bed, you have to you have to fight him. Like you, But if you're in the kitchen and he's in his upright posture and he's gripping a beer, maybe you can take the Gal approach. It's That's what makes them such mm-hmm. a great movie couple is that they, they really complement each other. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. I I think you know when it comes to subverting expectations, the way Glazer decides to um, intercut and edit essentially the uh, the death of Don is really interesting to me. I don't know because again, it's it's something I want that immediate catharsis of seeing him get shot right then and there. But he chooses to delay it and intersperse with the heist, which I I still don't know if I 100% can get on board with, but it's a very interesting choice. Kate, what do you think of that decision of essentially not giving us like the instant gratification of seeing Don getting blown away as a, you know, and then we see it later on. I really, I mean, I don't know. Um, I'm trying, I'm struggling to remember exactly how that played out in this movie. I do remember his death scene is very elongated. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so fractured. What, yeah. what happens, what happens is um, the kid comes in like, so he, he's yelling at, gal and they're all behind the glass looking at this in front of the pool and he smashes the glass over gal's head and then the kid the pool boy from the beginning uh comes in with that you know world's shittiest like flintlock rifle uh and don does the pointing a gun at me you better use it and he walks over and he just takes the the thing from the kid and then while he's doing that Deidre's ran in into the bedroom and she comes out with a much better um <laughs> rifle shotgun 
And I would argue that Glazer doesn't need to show it because just the look that goes between Dawn and Deidre, mm -hmm. like, you know, she shot. And then it cuts to London. That's yeah. how they handle it the first time before they show it to you. Yeah. I right. think, well, I do think withholding it like that, I guess I wasn't expecting for him to still be alive and for them to have to kill him like over and over. <laughs> um, that is an interesting choice. Yeah. Um, and I guess to me that it sort of accentuated like what a villain this guy is. He just like won't die. <laughs> mm. um, it, it like takes like, what is the final thing? Being smashed on the head with a rock? Uh, the barbecue, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Again, though, Don has to be Don't petty right to the end. He's been shot through the face. He's covered in blood, and he still has to tell H, the the other guy that he that he had sex with his wife at at some point, and uh, and then H comes in with the barbecue. No, yeah, no, I, no. I like Don. that he has the last. You're word. the one. You're the one that's fucked because he's not <laughs> doing anything during that whole. Like it's a communal. That's what the other thing that I really like, and why I really think that that death sequence needs that length because. Uh, Deidre doesn't kill Don. Gal doesn't kill Don. They all like do yeah. their ritual part in the. We are all collectively purging ourselves of Don. <laughs> um, no, you know, like that's that's pretty good. Yeah, and I, and I definitely think that just the heist is secondary and doesn't really matter. And I always like that when they do that in in these types of films and. You know, even something like like the limey, the revenge isn't really what matters necessarily. Um, so I th I really like his decision to sort of underplay that whole uh, heist sequence, but it's still really interesting to have it all take place underwater. Yeah, it's like it's a great heist scene. Um, <laughs> a different movie that would have been like the whole thing, and he's just right. like, oh, by the way. This was really creative and awesome, but I'm only going to spend like three minutes on it. <laughs> well, I think that's that's one of many ways you define genius is that Jonathan Glazer's throwaway scenes are better than the signature scenes from from most movies. And the one one of many reasons why, you know, you're in the hands of a very, very, very confident director is that delayed gratification. Now, in the mm. case with. Don's murder, I would argue that you know he's dead. Sure. You just don't see it. You don't get the, right away. the, the human, like, I need to, to see it in all its bloody glory. But my favorite delayed gratification moment, it's all through the film. Even the boulder at the beginning or the, the, the title card of the film, like with the Strangler song where they're mm -hmm. playing it, that takes its time. He's like, I am so confident we are just going to take our time. And that's what um, I like about it. And, and he, you know, before they finally give you the title and before the boulder comes in and everything, but the most delayed gratification moment in this thing is the, 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 the heist itself. So you have Teddy uh, who's played by Ian McShane mm -hmm. uh, and his crew. And they're all crewing up to do this, the, the job that he's been down and they're even doing the job like the, of the way the movie's cutting. And it's not till after the job has been done the job that doesn't matter <laughs> and everything else that Glazer actually gives you how Teddy figured out how he was going to break this impenetrable vault. Like the scene, the scene of Ian McShane walking down the street and then it freeze frames and then steam bath lights up. Like that is amazing <laughs> that they leave that so late 
in the film to show it. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't. He's left it so late; it doesn't even matter. But it's still bloody satisfying. The the style of that that shot, like it just looks. Because you do have to understand, as much as Logan is a menace, um, Teddy's kind of Cheshire cat smile is a more deadly menace. And watching Gal navigate Teddy is just as devastating. In the car. Um, It's just, well, in the car, in the restaurant, because Teddy's all smiles. Um, Mm -hmm. Even with the, uh, you know, even with the banker and, and everything, he's just... That's the world you don't want to be in, where every and that's the world that Ray Winstone describes at the beginning. All these people in London shuffling about in the grime and the the filth, and you know whether you take it literally or metaphorically, that's what he equates the criminal uh, underworld with, right? And he's mm-hmm. done with it, and he's done his time, and he's out. Yeah, I I, I certainly like. Ian McShane in this movie quite a bit. Uh, I mean, everybody's really, really solid here. So it's I think there's just something interesting and kind of subtle to um, allow this gangster to be bisexual, more or less, <laughs> because you normally don't have that. I mean, I think maybe Cronenberg did that with, uh, or at least hinted at it with Vincent Cassell in... Um, in uh, Eastern Promises, but I think it was uh, just like this little, you know, this little implicit hint when that when they're at that orgy and the guy is like looking at him. <laughs> uh, that oh, I, yeah, thought, I thought that, you meant with the pool boy because I got some vibes. Yeah, from the pool boy too. Yeah, well, maybe a little bit let, there. Well, I think the the most signature shot of homosexuality and homosexuality is like it's woven through this whole film mm-hmm. but i think the most signature shot is so you see the orgy and then he talks with the banker and then only a guy who works in advertising or music videos that shot like that mad dog shot of ian mcshane in the water i mean what else yeah. could that imply like That's- it's actually <laughs> so aggressive i'm amazed it got by the censors like i i feel that uh-huh. that is such a subtly transcendent visual image that it's 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 kind of like the like the um brad pitt and fight club spice splicing pornography into disney movies like it's it's just there for a second and no one's really sure what they saw for a second and the fact that there's so many other good scenes in the movie that you kind of forget that that's there but the whole heist is like it's all these guys underwater jackhammering like in tights like it's yeah. it's, it's it actually flying. almost like a parody of homosexuality uh, i mean even ian mcshane he walks in after the job and he's like i've only got one thing to say you're all a bunch of cunts or something or and and everyone to dawn says uh Everyone's or what's his name? H says to Don, you're fucked. Like everybody is constantly uh, got that. And that's I think that the gangster movie has always been like it's always like too many guys <laughs> too close to each other, spending far too much time with each other. Like it's going to and it's not a flattering uh, look at or way to portray homosexuality. But I guess they're criminals. They're hard types. But uh Yeah. Yeah, no, I I definitely it's I feel like this pretty much with all of Glazer's films that the more I rewatch them, the more I'll find to appreciate. Or I, that's 
turned out wrong, I'll, I'll be able to appreciate, I'll find more things to appreciate um, in all three of his films. But uh, I, I certainly want to get to birth next. Um, can I, can I mention one more thing sure. uh, before we move on to birth? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Let me, two more things. Sorry. I'm <laughs> derailing your podcast. Uh, no, I, love, uh, I know you love the movie, so it's okay. One is the composition and how blunt the metaphors are at the beginning of the movie. Uh, you, I think you either have to be really, really dumb or incredibly confident. It's not just the boulder. It's the boulder that crashes between the two hearts, hearts yeah, yeah. in mm-hmm. the pool and, and, and so forth. And the framing of Ray Winstone, um, you know, putting ice on his balls and, and like just the shot where it's like his crotch as the title card comes in and how long it takes. But when you look at how beautifully like it is, you can play count the Kubrick with sexy beast all already like that opening shot with the pool is as Kubrickian in its framing as, as you can possibly get. And a lot of the desert stuff is as well. Um, but I want to focus on uh, the shot where Don is describing how he found out about the bank job and how beautifully, how confidently that sequence is cut together. So oh, you have yeah. Don describing edited. it yeah. to Gal, but then his boss, the guy that called him on the phone when he's in his tidy whities um, then and then it, and then they say, "Who was it? Who was it? Who was it?" And it just keeps like it's almost like Inception, like you're going in and out of the story, and then it's Teddy. So now Teddy takes over the narrative and he's yeah. talking, and then he tells it to that person. How do you think it was? And I mean, in a way, it's kind of a ripoff of of. Uh, Don Rickles, or not Don Rickles, um, <laughs> Tim Roth, and I uh, can't remember who the actor is in in Reservoir Dogs, where they're rehearsing the story, how we're going to play out the story. They keep rehearsing yeah. it, and they, inter- they intercut it. That's what it I felt the most Tarantino Tim Roth, touch there. Um, doing it, right? But in a way, this is way more complex than Reservoir Dogs. Reservoir Dogs also a first film. But um, this is way more confident. And and this is, again, for someone who is used to delivering hyper-targeted uh, feelings, like in, in television commercials or in music videos, like he has a he has a really great ability to condense an image or condense a thing and then say, what the fuck? I'm going to really stretch this out and then I'm going to target it. And then I'm going to stretch it out. He knows how to mix silence with, with noise. And he's, he's very good at it. And sexy beast, it's fully formed right out of the gate. um, uh, In in terms of that style. And I think why I like sexy beast the most as a, I can just throw it on and, 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 and sink myself into it at any given moment is that uh, it's 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 kind of fun in in a mm-hmm. in a weird roundabout way. It's it's very accessible. His other films, Birth and uh, Under the Skin, are much more formal and much more daring. Whereas he's having fun with a pop genre, yeah, and he never does that again. Or at least he hasn't in these two. These two are they're their own their own animals. Yep, for sure. I think I. You know, just personally, I think I would be revisiting the Limey or Drive over Sexy Beast, but I can see myself warming up more and more to it at the same time because there's there's still a lot to uh, underneath the surface. You know, I mean, I think the dream sequences are very Lynchian because you know they're representing Gal's anxiety, and I think those are I don't think they're shoehorned in there. I think they're really interesting to look at um, on their own. 
and just the 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 very he has an interesting kind of morbid sense of humor with the with, with the rabbit joining Don uh, at the very end there. I like that well, because I, I think it's a final way. Like all throughout the movie, you kind of think like everything ominous in the film. It's just a metaphor for Don, but Don is a completely separate entity. To mm-hmm. the bunny, which is his more anxiety about his former life intruding. Yeah. And Don's like, I don't give a shit about your former life. I just wanted you to do the fucking job. That's how simple and childish Don is. He he smokes a cigarette, he goes, you know, and whatever. Keep keep in mind though, sexy beast is 125 minutes. You think about how much he does in in, in not 125 minutes, 85 minutes. One hour and 25 minutes. How yeah. much stylistically he throws at you. I, most movies of this kind of style tend to be longer. I well, like that's, that's why that I mentioned short. early on. It, it, it kind of reminds me of what Danny Boyle would do. I don't think he's ever. I don't think Danny Boyle's ever made an eighty-five minute long movie, but he does. Like in something like one hundred and twenty-seven hours, I'm pretty impressed with how much stylistic flourish he gets into the story. Hmm. And I think that's. I, I never mind that. Some people think it is too flashy or too showy or just I think it just brings an energy to a story that uh, could use some life to it could use some playfulness, could use some levity, can use some just interesting choices. Film um, is a visual medium. If you fail to take advantage of the medium that you're working in I, I think you've, you're doing yourself a disservice, right? Yeah, but I, I also appreciate when a filmmaker takes their time, like Kelly Reichardt and I like the inertia of the beginning of Sexy Beast where, you know, I know some people lose their patience at certain films like Sofia Coppola's Somewhere or Ty West's House of the Devil where things just take their time. And I like that experience just as much as, you know, crazy whip pans and cutting away and fast edits and what I like to call the um, the European sequence of the rules of attraction where (laughs) it's just like everything's happening all at once and it's like a whole movie in in like 40 seconds right exactly you know that i loved sean you know so much it's taken me this long and i can't get him out of my system i can't too many memories i understand that this is gonna sound crazy i've met somebody who uh who seems to be Sean. Am I to understand that that 10-year-old boy told you he was your late husband, Sean? He said, it's me, Sean. What am I supposed to think? (laughs) He's back. What do you want? You'll be making a big mistake if you marry Joseph. There's a boy this tall who wants to marry my fiance. You're hurting me. Don't bother me again. From now on, we're gonna tell the truth. What do you want to know? How did Sean meet Anna? We met at the beach. We got married 30 times in 30 days. How do you know what you know? I'm Sean. You can't go around saying you're somebody you're not. What are you doing? I'm looking at my wife. This is insane. I mean, I don't want to fall in love again with Sean. And that's what's happening. So birth is kind of like this... It's kind of this beautiful overture, and it's so well-established, again, with an opening credit sequence that's very, very memorable. And just, 
the the title itself, the the score coming in. And I am always drawn to stories about grief and kind of like having existential crises of sorts. But at the same time, I don't know if I've 100% fully embraced it. I still remain a little bit at a distance because it's hard to get past the sort of Kubrick and Polanski pastiche a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's not necessarily a bad thing because I love those directors and, but at the same time, I just I think just you know the the ca- the casting of Nicole Kidman here is actually really the strongest component for me because I think particularly that the the one very beautiful shot in this movie where she's watching the the symphony playing I think it's Wagner if I'm not mistaken that sort of telescopic close up really just says everything about the movie and i love it when he can do that um and do it very well but i don't know i think like the emotional impact i think it works a lot more successfully for you kurt than it does for me um i i I wish i really connected more to these characters on a personal level but that's not to say that as you know uh glazer's incredible filmmaking style here is dialed down, uh, whereas in Sexy Beast it was really ha- amped up in a good way. So I think he shows a lot of restraint in a very um, sort of mature manner here, and I think it really works out well. But again, I just have difficulty getting past some of his homages here. I think there's a lot of bit of a, there's a lot of awareness of I'm doing Kubrick or Polanski with this material. Um, Kate, what was your first experience? with with birth and your overall take okay well i feel like i have to watch it again <laughs> uh <laughs> yeah. now that i've seen it for the first time because the, the whole time i was watching it i was kind of like um like i'm not sure i can get over how awkward this premise is it's like a really beautiful like visually gorgeous movie with just like the weirdest premise <laughs> and i was like um so we're taking seriously that this kid is reincarnated or not and like, so that's what I was grappling with the whole time. And now I feel like once I've finished it, okay, I get it. I'd like to watch it again and sort of like with this understanding, try to make sense of it. Um, but I still think it was slightly awkward for me at some parts. Yeah. Um, and the, it's a little clumsy, I think, but overall it is effective. I think, um, especially that scene you mentioned uh, with, Nicole Kidman in the Wagner theater and that incredibly long close up on her face. Um, I think, and there are a couple other close ups as well, like similar shots in that movie. I think there's one of the kid too, mm-hmm. but I just don't think he's like a good enough actor to really handle it. Um, so there's like things like that that throw me off about this movie. Um, but so yeah, that's my experience sort of uneven but beautiful also. Yeah. I, I would I would agree like the first time I saw this, I didn't openly embrace it. But again, third time watching it, you know, there are things I like, there are things that I struggle with. Um but Kurt, what what ha- has been your experience with this film? Uh I I liked it when I watched it in two thousand and four. Uh but I've maybe seen it seven, eight time since then and it is a movie that a lot of the initial viewer 
anxiety, like the premise and things, they kind of wash away because it's not that we're supposed to accept the reincarnation, although there are some kind of maybe one might label them cheap tricks that that Glazer may seed us uh, with it. But I believe he plays fair by telling us it isn't with a fair bit of film left. Um, But I think it's only Nicole Kidman that believes. Like, I I feel that everybody around Nicole Kidman is incredibly pragmatic about how ridiculous this situation, particularly Lauren Bacall, in a way that only Lauren Bacall can be. But Danny Houston's not pissed off that this kid is the reincarnation of Sean. He's pissed off that his he's courted this woman for a long time. And now he's got to deal with this shit. <laughs> like yeah. I mean, when he spanks the kid, it's not that he's spanking the ex husband or the, the dead husband. He's spanking the fucking kid. Yeah. And, and Lauren Bacall. And I don't know the actress's name, but she's wonderful. That plays Nicole Kidman's sister in the movie. And, oh. Um, this movie, you can count the, you can play count the Kubrick, even more than Sexy Beast. Like I mean, he casts Arliss Howard, who is a pretty major character in Full Metal Jacket. Um, that opening shot is shot by the same guy who shot The Shining. He came in for one day just <laughs> to shoot that that Steadicam shot. Um, uh, Garrett uh, Brown, um, uh, who's a lovely guy. He's a technical guy. He invented the Steadicam. Um, but uh, and yeah, the whole um, the classical music and the zooms like it's not just there's the slow zoom, like almost the the Jack Nicholson zoom when Danny Houston's in the window. He's framed exactly like Nicholson is in The Shining. So, yeah, I, I can agree with you, Jim, in that this movie, it starts to get a bit wobbly with its homage. Like, like you mentioned, the the. Uh, um, the Polanski, I, I'm, I'm assuming you mean the Mia Farah haircut yeah. that she has. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I like the hysterical woman genre. Like, it's it's not an easy genre to do. It's usually done in really shitty horror movies. It's rare that you get, like, a, um, like a Henneke or a, um, or a Kubrick or a Polanski that can truly um, and believably put you in the headspace of someone who is emotionally fragile. And I, and I think if this movie does nothing else, there's other things it's trying to do, but if it does nothing else, it shows you this woman of privilege that is not in any way recovered from this random tragedy in her life. And it is random. I mean, the guy had a bad heart and yeah. he collapsed in a tunnel. Uh, and the fact that she thinks she's convinced herself that she's over his death is, is like the lie that instead of embracing it and moving on, she's just kind of lied to herself. And this childish situation that, you know, in a way that the, the kid is essentially Don Logan in a totally different vernacular. <laughs> Uh, he kind of barrels in. He does all this crazy shit that causes this kind of semi-perfect situation to blow a, a, out of the water. And then the consequences ripple all the way out. Even after the kid is out of the picture, Nicole Kidman, like when she's that, – that scene on the beach is one of the best closing shots in the 21st century. Yeah. Like it is – she's – 
she's on two thresholds, the land and the water. Um, she's with her husband. She's on the threshold of a new marriage and she is devastated with grief. Like there's no happiness. And that would normally be like, there'd be a photographer out there. In fact, he, um, Glazer even acknowledges that there is a photographer shooting her at one point during the wed- their wedding, right? Like, and he's posing her and mm-hmm. she's not into it, but this, like, what are they in the Hamptons, I guess, like this beach that they're on should be this, oh, we've got this perfect private beach for our wedding and we can frolic in the water. And it's laced with pure fucking madness. Like it is devastating. And I don't even know if Danny Houston sees it. He is kind of holding her and comforting her, but I don't think Danny Houston's smart enough to completely grasp just how far he thinks, oh, if I just play it cool, it'll all work out. And the depths of, the complexity of Nicole Kidman's grief in that movie and how she articulates it as an actress is pretty profound. So I can forgive the movie a lot of flaws, homage, whatever else, because I can't think of too many movies that cut that deep. Like that is, I mean, not even uh, Henneke's like Amour, uh, which I, which I also very much like um, and also deals with a kind of grief. Um, it doesn't get as raw as as this movie. I, 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 and the fact that he's populated everyone around her as rational people, and it still isn't helping, is is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's about coming to terms with death, and she, which she never does. No, which she never does until that's, the that's very how, end. How pro- no, not to the very end. She never comes to terms. How profoundly depressing is this movie? Yeah. Like she doesn't even come close. She's rawer at the end than she was at the beginning. Yeah, I guess. And it's I don't a portrayal I don't of denial. I don't see. An, I don't see another side to this. Like she's, she, she's going to be a mess forever. Like that's, she can put a veneer over it, whether it's wealth or whatever. But she's. She's fucked for the rest of her life. I mean, it's a pretty depressing film. I mean, there's also the part with her being attracted to a 10-year-old boy. I think that's pretty devastating, too. Yeah. Um, I think that's another part of this film that was interesting to me, is that he doesn't shy away from that weirdness. Um, He sort of just leaves you with it. Um, And it made me very uncomfortable. And I thought that was really interesting and good. Um, yeah, the bathtub the, moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this kid is like, she can believe that this kid is like her future husband and at the same time realize like he acts like a kid. Um, he does when he's eating his ice cream or whatever, yeah. Or kicking the chair. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I found that very enticing. Um, and also, I'm very interested in kids at that age also, which is another thing I enjoyed about this movie that they do have like the sexuality that's about to be unleashed. Um, and in the meantime, everybody's very uncomfortable with them, which makes them sort of dangerous in a way. Um, is there which, a sexual component with the child? I mean, is I there? do, I do think so. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I think that's why people hated that bathtub scene so much. Um, yeah. because it makes you, it makes them uncomfortable because it's meant to, I think. Oh, well, I mean, she, she brings up sexuality directly to him. At one point. That's right. Yeah, she does. Like, that, I think, is the most... The bathtub is far less disturbing to me. I think that 
that scene is incredibly tastefully shot. Uh, all oh, things yeah. considered, but it's the scene where that that you mentioned before, Kate, where they're in the the diner and she's laid out like this, uh, you know, you know, Owen Wilson and Bottle Rocket like five level plan of how they're gonna right. <laughs> work this out. In fact, uh, I would highly recommend to anyone that uh, that liked the exquisite discomfort place that that birth puts you in those scenes to seek out i don't know who directed it it's a british uh film uh as well uh called womb with uh with eva green and uh matthew smith one of the doctor who's uh and it's a it's a woman who literally like sees her husband die same premise or same idea but it's in the future and uh it's right on the eve of cloning and so she uses one of her eggs to clone her boyfriend and then re-raises him to be her boyfriend. It is profoundly. (laughs) And it's not, the filmmaking is not as good. I think it's actually a Hungarian film. Now that I think about it, the filmmaking is not as good as birth, but it has that same aspect, which I always equate with Jonathan Glazer's film is you are having a conversation with yourself. As you watch this movie, you are deeply going, how do I personally feel you like sexy beast? This definitely under the skin. There are movies that really force. And a lot of people in all fairness, don't go to the movies for that. They do. In fact, they find that to be profoundly not the reason why they go to the movies. And I think that's why so many people uh, like both of these movies, both birth and under the skin premiered in Venice to booze. And I can't think of a greater personal catnip than Europeans booing a film. I have loved every movie that has been booed at a European film festival. <laughs> like, I don't know why you always think of the Europeans being more sophisticated in film taste, but they're not really. In fact, they, they dislike the new and unusual as much as everyone else. Um, anyway, that's, that's unfortunate. Personal, that's a personal <laughs> thing. Uh, we always, we always equate con and Venice and the Berlin alley as like these bastions of culture. And I, and I find that those festivals tend to be shockingly close minded um, when it comes to the new, which you would think is the fertile ground of a, of a film festival, at least in the majority, I'm sure there's tons of people at any festival that love a movie and tons of people that hate it, but the Europeans tend to be more vocal about their hate. I don't, I can't think of any movie I've been to at the Toronto international film festival that has been openly actively booed. And I've seen a lot of shitty films at the Toronto international film festival. I've never ever heard of anyone uh, booing, but like Sofia Coppola Richard Kelly, Jonathan Glazer, Vincent Gallo, uh, Gus Van Sant, they're all booed and booed often. And by the time those films make it over to North America, they're just fine. They're they're quite good. <laughs> Did you see the Gus Van Sant movie that was booed, The Sea of Trees? I'm super excited to see it. I don't believe it ever played here. So I it's on VOD in the yeah. States. Yeah. So I've been meaning to, I, I just I mean, haven't I deeply want to see it because it was booed at a European film I, festival. I love Gus Van Sant and obviously I love the cast. I just, I don't know. Um, I, I'm, I'm worried, <laughs> but no, you're right. That's, that's very true about just the different responses to, I mean, I never really, even if I outright hated a movie, I just never felt the, like the instinct to like, just 
vocalize it in front of everybody at the very end. Uh, that's just that's just something that never really occurs to me, and I I just can't imagine like people. Well, I mean, I I guess people can have a complete disconnect with a movie like Birth, but because I openly welcome the opportunity to look inward as much as look at film, you know, as a separate experience. I think it's, I think, I think I often prefer the uh, ambiguity of a movie or the, the questions that it's posing to you. Like, how would you react in this situation? And having those conflicted feelings while watching this movie is actually a sign of a great film. (laughs) Um, because not everything is cut and dry. Not everything is black and white. It's not easily spoon-fed to you. And that's kind of what I appreciate about Jonathan Glazer, especially once we get to his final film here. I think he challenges his audience to think very deeply about some very personal and intense things that he may have experienced himself and is asking the audience to experience in that moment and sort of think of where you stand. And I, th- I I can understand that completely with birth. I think it takes real yutzpah to show you two-thirds into the film that the kid's a filthy little liar. Like, the, the, in the opening yeah, I shot... I thought about that at first. In the opening I'm, shot with the guy in the tunnel, and then it cuts to, like, this very live birth... I mean, that's film language for shit. This shit is real. Uh, and then he he tells you, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's not real. That was a postulation. The whole film's a postulation. But I am definitively telling you that is actually most art films like to leave it ambiguous. And I like ambiguity. Uh, but it's more interesting to know that all of this is Nicole Kidsman's problem, not the universe's problem. And that more interesting. I'm not so sure. I wasn't, I wasn't completely convinced that he was lying. Um, Like, like he maybe convinced himself that he was, he was like, Oh, I take, Oh, that's an interesting uh, interpretation. That was how I saw it. And like, not, so I think it is still ambiguous to me. He could be totally making it up or he could be, I don't know. I think that's what the reveal with the letters was trying to communicate to us. But I can see the argument for that possibility that maybe he read all these letters and had this own experience of projection and wanted to basically become this person. Maybe to the point, yeah, where it he has like disassociation in some ways, where he yeah. is no longer himself, but the ex-husband. So that's, yeah, something like that. Like he's not necessarily lying. But he might not be telling the truth. But oh, he- you mean like the the well, the power of belief. Like you can you can be telling something that is objectively false, but easily pass the polygraph if you believe it. And that's that's I think what you're getting at, right? Right. I think he yeah. at mm-hmm. certain at points he definitely believes it. I think, and and like I'm not sure he's wrong either. I mean, not to get into like the logistics of reincarnation, but. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it is interesting to interpret the movie from the mysteries of the universe. Like if you say that there is some abstract, you know, whatever, something in the ether that is filling this kid with that. That's an that's an interesting I, I, the film certainly doesn't have time to right. really 
follow that thread, but it, because he is very convincing for his age, right. like at the uh, the thing, but it might be the cusp of, you know, adulthood or whatever. Uh, it might just be simple luck, but uh, it, it also might be something more profound. Yeah, yeah and I think, I think more to... importantly, Nicole Kidman does believe he's lying, which yeah. I think is the more important aspect of it. Mm. But but is wants to believe because the movie is like how desperately deep mm-hmm. do you want right. to believe something? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, that's an interesting point to make in regards to like, I, I certainly l- like the idea of presenting the possibility that reincarnation actually happened. It creates this really creepy romance in, in yeah. a way that, I mean, it makes you uncomfortable, but part of you also wants to believe it can happen. So I think it sort of creates that, uh, like, just competitive dichotomy within yourself that I kind of openly enjoy experiencing, although it's mostly uncomfortable. Um, But then he decides to pull the rug from under you, more or less, with the Anne Heche reveal and subplot that occurs with the letters and the fact that Oh, he would, you know, if you were Sean, you would have came to me because we were lovers. And, you know, that and whole confrontation is done because he doesn't have any of that information. So he's just sitting there. In fact, doesn't he run away and climb a tree? Like, that's a, yeah. a, a yeah. kid reaction to getting caught. Run exactly. away. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. My favorite moment like of levity uh, in the film in a film with almost zero levity uh, is Lauren Bacall um, when they're sitting in the apartment and I think she's got her two daughters with them and and they're like Nicole Kidman's like I'm going I don't give a shit what you think and Lauren McCall's like I didn't even like fucking first Sean <laughs> like, it's very funny to me. like I, whether this kid is the, the Sean or not like I didn't even like the first one before he fucking died like that is just so there's not many actresses that can maybe Maggie Smith um, I can't think of too many other actresses that can pull off just delightful disdain quite like Lauren Bacall can she's she's really I don't know if this was her final film or not but uh, uh, it's a wonderful piece of casting yeah it's a treat to have her there <laughs> that was one yeah. thing I'll say mm-hmm. about this movie for sure yeah, I mean, every now and then I would like to believe that, uh, you know, the spirit of my dad is uh, in a cat, and I'm going to find that cat someday, and it's going to keep You'll me company. You'll be stuck with a cat. Yeah. You'll be stuck <laughs> with a cat. That's literally the opening narration of the film, right? Like, before we get any images, that's him discussing that, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, the, and you know, obviously this holds true for all of Glazer's films, but just the score, the, it, it, the music is used so beautifully to sort of illustrate the expanse, expansive qualities of Anna's emotions, and it tracks the psychological line of the story as well as any film score I've ever heard, and the cinematography by... Um, Harris, uh, the great late Harris Savides, who yes. shot so many Gus Van Sant films, and uh, and Sofia Coppola. That that guy is unbelievable, and he does such great work. Um, yeah, I, I wonder if he's a fan of a space odyssey. If you look at the the apartment in Birth, it's like the mirror image of the ghostly space hmm. apartment at the end of. Uh, 
2001 a space odyssey like where it's all white with accents of green this is the other way around all or all ivory with accents of green this is all green with accents of uh, of of ivory um it's it's pretty impressive as a production design yeah, um for sure film i i love the way glazer uses uh climate like all three of his movies have drastically different environments like this so the the urban you know sort of eyes wide shut new york at christmas um look of of birth and then the swelteringly hot spanish uh look in that and then the dark and damp um look of of most of uh under the skin it's it's interesting how he uses the weather (laughs) as a as an indication of of the mood of his own picture right um oh for sure and that changes in under the skin if i'm not mistaken like just weather changes moods essentially and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah you you do watch it you do watch it yeah it's yeah. um it's not as prevalent here but i think that that on the verge of autumn to winter mm-hmm. is um, is pretty intent intentional. One interesting thing that I read about uh, Birth when I was preparing for this podcast, because uh, I don't I don't know Wagner all that well, but it's it's I'm sure this is it's either a delightfully happy accident or way overthought. Um, the the Wagner piece that she listens to when she is that it's the act of her convincing herself that that Sean is in fact, her dead husband. It's the point where she goes from this is ridiculous to I'm kind of in. I want to believe. Um, That's actually the second movement of Wagner's The Ring. And the end of the film, when we at least know that it's like a lie and that she's stuck, the closing credits is the first movement of of that. So we're back and oriented in the first world um at the end of the film as opposed to the possibility of the second world which she you know and and it's also telling that the the um the performance of the second movement is um inside the film and the 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 actual bigger world is the 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 closing credits and the actual like filmmaker stamp is the first movement um of saying, look, there's only one. We only do one here. Kurt, this is why I pay you the big bucks. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Good job. <laughs> it just pretty much just sums up the movie in, in a way. Is like, uh, yeah, the music just complements it so well and it complements her psychological state. And I think that would hold true very much so for his third film. Um, Kate, why don't you lead us off with this one? Because I think it's, uh, I, I've been doing too much talking. Kurt's been doing too much talking. I would like to hear uh, just an overall assessment of Under the Skin from you to start the oh, conversation. Man. An overall assessment. That's kind of a small <laughs> order. Right. Um, yeah, well, I just finished watching this movie through for just the second time. Um, and I know it has like a lot more to give than that. I do think it's far and away... To me, it's the best one of the three. Um, And maybe from my perspective, there is sort of a gendered component to it. I do see it as sort of a feminist film, but 
I also can see way, like a million other ways to think about it. Oh, yeah. um, so I think on a personal level, it sticks with me a lot for that reason. I think Scarlett Johansson, who I don't even normally like, is just amazing in this. Um, and I think she just has a very powerful presence, which I didn't expect. I remember the first time I saw it. Um, she doesn't really have very much dialogue at all, except for her like sort of improvised conversations with um, strangers on the street who are actually like not actors. Um, and you just get this like sense of her sort of discovering herself um, as a human, which is very interesting. Um, and to me, more like discovering herself as a woman and what that means on planet earth, which is not necessarily a good thing (laughs) all the time. Um, So those are like my main thoughts about this. And it's just such a dense um, piece of art that I could watch it over and over again. Um, And I think my interpretation is definitely subject to change. I think the first time I watched it, I very much wanted to have sort of, uh, an interpretation of it. And I think it does sort of defy a single interpretation, which is one of its big strengths to me. Um, so I definitely think it's going to be a good conversation because um, you can, you definitely can get so much out of this just depending on who you are and what your experiences are. Um, so it's a great movie. <laughs> it really, the first time I saw it, I'd say I'd give it four out of five. And this only being my second time, I'm still giving it a 4.5 out of 5. So I'm, I'm anticipating the third watch. I will be on Masterpiece level. Because <laughs> right. it exists in this interesting state of fluidity almost. I mean, it has a kind of a slow momentum to the narrative with these kind of blank spots filled with you know, time for reflection or silence. Um, And it's interesting to think that, I don't know if this was the same year, but it's two back-to-back movies in which Scarlett Johansson plays a not-quite-human entity coming to terms with being at a remove from humanity. Like, feeling on the outside of looking in, desperately wanting to be more human, or what does that mean? And the other film being Her... Of course, mm-hmm. where it's just, you know, we get to know her through uh, her language and her voice. And I think that's because it's almost like the flip side of, of this film here, because it's, she, like you mentioned, Kate, very little dialogue. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, I just love films that challenge the art form and the audience. And I think Under the Skin does that to where it's been divisive. Um, it creates tension it feels grounded and yet very alien, of course, no pun intended. And mm-hmm. it has one of the single biggest jump scares I think I've ever had. And I don't feel it to be manipulative. In fact, I was watching it, you know, with surround sound in my home, and I'm going, okay, I know it's coming. I know it's coming. I know it's coming. So I was trying to prepare myself not to jump or get scared, and it still happened. <laughs> so. It plays with silence and sound design and score better than maybe any movie of the past decade. I think the only other film that comes close for me would be Punch Drunk Love in that it works with all those things to complement 
not only the mood of the film, but the internal state of the character and what it all means. And like I mentioned, I I do see this as a feminist film. And again, it was what I was thinking when I first watched it. And the person I saw with the first time really um, honed in on that component and, again, had a very different experience with the ending than I have had, although I can recognize and certainly validate that opinion. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I I love this movie. I really do. I just I think there is a little bit of restlessness, and I first time I saw it, I kind of dismissed her transition as Starman-esque. Um, <laughs> But I don't necessarily feel that way now. I think I think it moves to that third act once she looks in the mirror and sees the fly trapped. I think all that leads to what she decides to ultimately do and escape. And I think it all works now. The end. <laughs> that's yeah. That's uh, that. That in itself is a, is a lot to uh, unpack. But I, I this was my favorite film of two thousand and thirteen. Um, I know it released commercially, but it played quite a bit on the festival circuit uh, before it came out in January, February. Uh, It was a movie that took me a while to come back to a second. Like I bought it on Blu-ray the moment it came out. Yeah. Um, And it took me a while in the same way that a space odyssey, it takes me a while to work up kind of the nerve to jump back into that film. They're not. I'm like that with Solaris. (laughs) The, 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 the long Tarkovsky version or the yeah. shorter? Because yeah. uh, I'm a big fan <laughs> of the George Soderbergh Clooney, one. Right? Uh, the Soderbergh one is one of the most underrated films. It is it's oh, yeah. as it good is. or better than the Tarkovsky one, um, but in different ways. Um, but it does exactly what Jonathan Glazer's filmography is. The, the, my favorite line, I quote it in an ungodly number of reviews for other films is the Dr. Jabarian line from the Soderbergh one of, uh, we go to outer space. We don't want other worlds. We want mirrors. And I feel that's what Glazer projects to us. That's how a lot of people go into cinema. And I feel it's actually a strength, not a weakness that a film projects a mirror in a, in a, in a weird, uh, way. I, I look at this as a deeply human movie, but I also look at it as a, it's kind of a trickster movie. Um, it, it feels all earnestly art house, but if you think about how this movie is presented, we're watching someone murder people as her job. I mean, she's essentially the Nazi foot soldier at the beginning of the film. She's seducing men and murdering them. Like clearly we see with each progressive man that she lures we then realize that these men are dead (laughs) like after this like it's it's awful and the movie does an incredible job after showing us this horrible otherly uh is she a serial killer is she an alien whatever and then by the end of the movie even before the rape you fully empathize with her. You've forgiven her all of her sins. You're like, yeah. oh, she's discovering empathy. Like, I think ultimately anyone that deeply upsets you, that does, when, you know, that people make that face when someone has done something that they can't believe, like they said something they can't believe that someone said, or they just, you know, cut someone off or slammed a door. Like, you're like, seriously is usually the word that follows that face. Um, that's kind of what the first act of 
this movie is. And then you watch her develop empathy. And then in the great sort of Machiavellian trickster move, uh, Glazer punishes her for developing empathy when she's a fully empathic, like almost human she's raped and set on fire. Like you see, like it's, a, it's, that makes it's me a, angry still. it's it a really profound, does. <laughs> it's a pretty profound message though. No, but I still think he's saying that empathy is a strength, but you have to be vigilant that the more you can feel, the more of a good person you are, the more vulnerable you are to some asshole breaking the fragility mm. of that thing. The fragility is a masterful, marvelous thing to be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes, to be able to help someone when they fall down, which actually happens in the middle of this picture. And is one of the main steps she gets into, in discovering, Oh, these people aren't like fucking cows. They're, they're, they're people. And, and that, and, and then it, and then she becomes by the end of the movie, she becomes the prey that, she's doing at the beginning um uh and it's a it's kind of a vicious psych that he proposes but i I think it's unwise to dwell on the negativity of the cruelty of the universe and enjoy the pockets that like a kind of like i guess in the the recent denny villeneuve uh film arrival Arrival, uh where Amy Adams translates the alien language through the right combination of intuition, intelligence, and empathy. It's That's, like leaning in to solve uh, the, you know, how to talk to someone. That's exactly um, because, where I stand. Like Arrival was like, this is this is how I feel and how I see the world. Um, whereas like Under the Skin, I think the part of me wants to go into that dark place of. Man, humanity, it, it, it's not there anymore. It sucks. And men are awful and they prey upon women. And I believe know. that is utter wrong attitude to have. And it, it's, it's a classic case of getting all hung up on the negative. Yeah, sure. there's lots of negative. Uh, celebrate. Don't celebrate that 90% of movies suck. Celebrate the fact that 10% of movies are fucking awesome. Nobody profits. Nobody profits from dwelling on the fact that human beings do awful things to each other. But if you actively participate, you you tell someone to put a coat on because it's cold out. You give them a meal. You show them some weird British jar and spoon comedy. Uh, you do something to actively improve someone's. Don't fucking protest that the world is shit. Go out and do something fucking nice for someone. And that, I, I actually, that's my takeaway uh, from from a lot of Glazer's filmography. Learn how to spot happiness where it is. Embrace it and protect it because it's pretty fucking fragile. But that's not the note he really leaves you on. Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> and that's kind of what leaves I, see, me my, easy in a good way. I, I think, I think the, the note I walk away from uh, from Under the Skin is not that she's killed in a horrible way or punished or raped or that mon- mon- misogyny is alive and well. I think it should be celebrated. We're all going to fucking die. I, I think we should celebrate the fact that Wow, she actually communicated. She actually learned something. She actually evolved yeah, progressed, <laughs> before yeah. she died. That's pretty 
she's no longer like the movie opens with her like stripping like I don't know if it's a dead version of herself or or whatever. But the, the telling thing is not that she's taking off clothes. That's just giving you plot. The real opening of that movie is her looking at the ant when she when she picks up the ant and she's like, oh, I'm stripping this for my job. But what is this thing? And when you look at the aliens themselves, they look like bipedal black ants and she's trapped in the hive in her job like those ants the fact that she gets to break free and wander through the forest and leave the collective for a while that's that's what we should be celebrating not that some fucking dick of a logger came and decided to not only rape her but set her on fire i I don't think i I don't like to dwell on that kind of stuff I i think it's much most people go through life without ever being able to empathize or or sympathize with other people that should be celebrated not not the fact that she ended horribly yeah i think my feeling about who um the entity you might want to say is at the very beginning was another alien that failed in a, a previous mission basically she's uh scarlett johansson what she's about to become she is a failed alien <laughs> and right. she has a little tear going down her face because she ultimately became too human to complete the mission. And so that's why oh, we have Scarlett not, Johansson. Not that she was taken when she was gathering up people in a van and she was just raped by some Scottish yahoos. I, I figured that's what, if, if she was another version of the, of an alien that was out, she was just killed on the job. She didn't get to, blossom because she just blindly kept doing her job hmm. anyways you yeah. can you can graft on whatever you want to that i suppose yeah i think um, i just like especially since we focus on the tear i was thinking you know she became like scarlett johansson became aware or at least acknowledged the tear and maybe didn't know what it was at that exact moment um and you know eventually she just becomes what <laughs> this first alien became and that's kind of what the uh, the cyclist is trying to prevent and that's why he checks in on her at that one point um that's like that's before like he the the, the motorcyclist checks in on her before she actually experiences like a collective empathy from when she falls and people try to help her and st- or people do help her and i think that's when she experiences you know just that um the bystander helping her out and she's able to have clarity maybe about what it means to be human. And then there's that beautiful sort of organic sequence of cutting to see all these different people interacting on the streets that I really like. And then there's that almost like Stan Brackage kind of visual. Yeah, the, golden, the golden montage. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. love that. So yeah. That's much. beautiful. Yeah, that's the that's the Nicole Kidman opera scene in Under the Skin. That's her. That's her. Wow, these are all people, and they they have lives, and and they're living perhaps they're living more than me. Although I think it's telling, and one thing we haven't just talked about, uh, I think this movie's mostly about shopping. Um, hmm. Most of the movie, she's shopping for meat for for the motorcyclist, right? Mm-hmm. She's in a van essentially, which is like a what you move goods around in. Um, and when she's in Glasgow and she's wandering around, like everybody's going, like she asked for directions to the, to the 
convenience store. Then she asks the uh, she picks up the deformed man and he's going to Tesco, which is another brand of convenience store. Uh, and then when she meets up with the third man, he goes and buys his stuff at the convenience store. Like it really is a movie about, wow, we get really caught up in, in, in shopping for shit when we really should be talking to each other. And she breaks out of the cycle by the, by the end of like, even the guy that, helps her out they still go shopping and he tries to feed her and and do whatever uh he still also comes on to her um but once she leaves him she's like i there's no more fucking shopping i'm wasn't the first thing she does she goes to to the mall no she leaves she yeah the movie opens with her going to the mall to get the the fur jacket and and whatnot and all through the movie everybody's shopping everybody's carrying shopping bags everybody Mm -hmm. is walking around Shopping. This is not an element that's in the novel, but it can't be an accident that you film. I know they like like Kate mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that a lot of this was just them driving around and getting random footage in the hopes that they can get a natural reaction. But there's too much of one thing in that movie. There's too much going to stores and and uh, like, I mean, even the club that where she picks up the one guy. I mean, what is a club but a fucking You know what I mean? Like, so, uh, like, it. I feel that that movie is aggressively saying that by filling our lives up with shit and acquiring shit, we're missing out on. Because all the great experiences that she has is just stopping and looking. Just, like, all these mundane things that you take yeah. for granted. I've got to get to the store to buy groceries. You're not watching the fact that it's beautifully cloudy or that there's a fog. They're just inconveniences to prevent you from getting to your shopping. She actually spends a lot of time in, like, in that childlike wonder looking at things outside. As she progresses in her empathy, she shops less, whether it's be for men or whether it be for objects. Yeah, that's, um, like, in fact, every item that she acquires late in the film is actually given to her. It's not her going out and shopping for things. Like she, someone gives her a coat. Someone does this. Someone does that. They're, they're human transactions, not economical transactions. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's clear that she does evolve and begin to experience empathy. But it's also, I'm kind of sad that she can't enjoy a piece of chocolate cake or sex. Yeah, <laughs> it's sad <laughs> to some degree, you know. I mean, it's just because she's not fully human and she can't actually enjoy those things. Like Jeff Bridges gets to enjoy the Dutch apple pie and Starman. Mm-hmm. So I hear she has to spit it out, and well, that kind of makes me sad. <laughs> um, but also one really out of not necessarily out of left field scene but just a really haunting and disturbing one is the one on the beach i was Uh, thinking about that one too yeah kate what do you think i mean that's that really devastates me just just the idea of leaving the baby behind in particular yeah it's a really hard scene to watch um and yeah i'm glad we're talking about it because you think about the part after she's developed empathy but before that she's very very inhumane or just like not she's obviously not human. She, um, yeah. she just like watches with interest as the guy she's talking to um, goes off to save these people, and she's kind of like, "Why is this happening?" Um, and they all 
pretty much die in the process. And she's just like, well, that was interesting. Um, but we humans watching it are just like, this is devastating. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a very tragic scene. Um, well, particularly so- with a baby. I think we're all programmed as human beings to respond to a child in need. And I think Glazer demonstrates because again, this is before any of her epiphanies, uh, demonstrates just how otherworldly they are, that they just don't, so it's a little baby human there, like who gives a shit? They they just want the guy that is untraceable. <laughs> they don't want the dog, they don't want the family with the dog, they certainly don't want the baby. Although there's a scene later that yeah. contrasts that, where she hears the news report of them, and she's now oh, this other thing on the radio is talking about these people that, that died. It's, it, uh, I agree, though. I, I find that sequence on the beach much harder to watch than the rape of, uh, of, of her by the, um, by the lumberjack because the, it's so cold, that scene on the beach. It's mm-hmm. shot really far away. They linger on the... On the um, like the the volume of the baby like and then and then the guy comes in to collect the the tent and like the last remaining traces of the of the Scandinavian man's belongings and he and again he just the baby's still there and it, good baby performance um the baby <laughs> is still screaming <laughs> and he's looking around in this very interesting way like it's it's i i can't imagine the amount of paperwork they had to do to get a, a kid actor like of that young age because uh, there's all sorts of rules uh, around how you can use children in film, and uh, they, I feel like they push that really well. I don't know what it looked like behind the scenes, but man, it's effective on screen. And I feel all of humanity is programmed to respond to a crying of a baby. I can't think of a better way to show something as being either a sociopath or alien than have it not respond to a helpless baby. It's it's kind of like the boulder in. In like it's a pretty obvious metaphor, but obvious isn't bad. I think Glazer is a shining example that the blunt force metaphor can work if the rest of the filmmaking is really strong and you can get away with. Whereas in a lesser film, if you resort to something that obvious and you don't have the the chops to pull it off in in other aspects, it just feels like a blunt metaphor. I, I never feel like I'm being gypped with the bolder. Um, or the bathtub in birth, like you, you can't get a more obvious rebirth metaphor than a bat than, than a baptism or water, um, or or the or the the baby in in this movie. I, I think uh, I think he makes it all work. Yeah, he also. Well, those, Go ahead, Kate. Those scenes are just so effective um, that even if they are blunt metaphors, I think they're just so emotionally involving. Um, mm-hmm. That, that that also makes them work. Yeah, I think in all three films, he focuses on the element of water in different ways, which, I mean, clearly at the end of birth and even that beach scene in Under the Skin. I mean, it's, it's obviously a go-to metaphor. I mean, the way Inherent Vice opens is we pretty much just see uh, an empty beach side. Uh, and same with the master. So... It's it, it might be an easy go-to metaphor, but I think it means something differently in in each film, more or less. Um, 
you know, the, the obviously we mentioned the bathtub rebirth and with under the skin, it really is almost like just uh, the nature of the sea or, you know, is just, there's no controlling it. It just happens. Well, the think, tide can I take think, you. I think that's the difference. Cause there's, Keep in mind, there's two waters in Under the Skin. There is that weird artificial pool that she lures the men into, um, and that's a hyper-controlled, it's glassy, everything is symmetrical, uh, everything is contained. And then there is the raging Scottish sea, Mm -hmm. which is, I mean, the movie, after it does the whole eyeball assembly thing, the first shot you see is like a waterfall, like a rushing of water over the thing before it cuts to uh, the guy on the motorcycle coming to collect um, the the dead body. I I firmly believe that the Irish critic um, Mark Cousins, I don't know if you've seen his big omnibus uh, story of film, documentary it's like 15 15 hours long it's very worthwhile but in the middle of that documentary he says there's just something visually powerful about wind in movies like how many filmmakers use the swaying of trees uh and and it can be used as so many different ways i would say an extension to that observation would be rushing water which i feel um i mean even I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong here. But in even in Sexy Beast, uh, so the pool, sure, the pool is the center. But the, the he inverts it. He inverts it. Um, the the rushing water is when everything's under control. The heist is under control. When they kill Don and they they're refilling the pool, that's when you see the rushing water. And so it's actually inverted in that film. So hmm. I'm not sure what that exactly means. Uh, but in in Under the Skin, the rushing water definitely means chaos and not yeah. under not understanding yeah yeah and much of this film was shot with a camera they actually made called i think it's called a one cam uh and i think they built it because they wanted something that was small enough to hide um obviously in the van so it, again he's showing innovation that you know obviously going back to orson wells having to build cameras so you can shoot from a low angle and things like that so i think again like he really is meticulous i mean he could very well take 10 years <laughs> i hope it's not the case but if he does well, take another 10 years it'll be well worth the wait so you live alone yes I think I'm pretty. I like last time you touched someone.
I can tell you, nobody was more excited after uh, seeing, like, after being huge fans of Sexy Beast and Birth. Uh, no one was more excited than me to be sitting in the Princess of Wales Theater at the Toronto Film Festival for the North American, at least, premiere of uh, of under the skin because i'm like i don't care that it's been 10 years i expect greatness i will accept nothing less than (laughs) greatness and i fully believe that under the skin delivers that on a first time viewing and it there's other things to think about um as you watch it but if you look at if your main criteria of cinema uh is first and foremost humanity and second is novel like novel not as a book but in in terms of new a new way to tell humanity a new way to look at things under the skin is absolutely in the category of this is new no one's done anything like this before yeah you can think of analogs whether it's her or solaris or um or what or starman uh but nothing approaches it like this uh it um in a way birth is kind of stifling because it is so formal in the way it's shot and set up and executed mm-hmm. under the skin is more confident because he's like fuck it we're just gonna go out into glasgow and we're gonna shoot a bunch of shit and it's gonna work out like that is serious tightrope walking when you're making a film and you know you're you're contracting a, a fairly large movie star um and uh yeah i i think i don't know how much under the skin cost it doesn't look terribly expensive but uh um and but that's not a problem if you can do something new and not be with you know beholden to money men <laughs> that's a good thing um i'm happy i'm very happy with this i look forward to whatever he does next i, I really deeply hope that he gets to make a movie with uh denny levant who he's made a shit ton of tv commercials with like stella artois commercials and and uh guinness commercials um he and and that uncle video i don't know if you've ever seen that oh, yeah, video that he made where where he's in the tunnel and he just keeps getting run over by cars yeah. that's kind of a good jonathan glazer kind of motif oh for um, sure Definitely. Uh, but he just keeps getting up, right? He just keeps getting up. I, I, I'm like, uh, Leo Skarax did such a good job with uh, three or four times with Levant culminating in Holy Motors from a few years ago. I would love to see, um, I would love to see Glazer make a feature uh, with Levant because in interviews around uh, Under the Skin, he he talks about how much he loves silent cinema and Denny Levant is essentially like a silent film actor <laughs> that somehow is making movies in the nineties and two thousands. Like it's no coincidence in Mr. Lonely. He plays Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> I would just, I would like to see what Glazer does with him. He has a great physical presence. Yeah. I mean, I'm very curious to see what he's going to do next because I feel like he's got, I don't know necessarily a lot of clout, as a result of Under the Skin, or if studios are going to be lining up to give him money necessarily, because <laughs> he doesn't call himself a filmmaker. He's like, ah, eh, occasionally I make a film. I'm like, Jesus, like if that is That's you're occasionally making a film, what the hell? Uh, I'm not sure. He has nothing on the IMDb, nothing that I'm aware of that he's doing. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, 
some, I mean, like, I don't know, I don't know if Tom Ford would consider himself to be a fashion designer first and foremost, but that seems to be his area of expertise, necess- you know, and I... Have you seen Nocturnal I, Animals? I have, and I'm, again, what a shock, I'm torn. <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's one of my favorite films this year. I, I, so no, that's, that is a total Kurt movie, um, through and yeah. through. Uh, and, I mean, it's funny, because, like, you mentioned your excitement for Under the Skin. I remember, like, you on the Cinecast, just going... You know, like when you do your anticipated films of the year, obviously Under the Skin was number one for you, and you just like... Yeah, I was. Ex- I think I was excited for you to see Under the Skin, well, it's, and it's so rare that that delivers. I have yeah, tons no, of totally. things that I have a lot of stupid level of expectations. It is so rare that a filmmaker consistently delivers. And the one thing about Glazer is the same with Kubrick. He does a different movie every, every time. time. Yeah. He's not getting locked into a Batman fucking trilogy. Let's hope not. That'd but be awful. He's not making uh, nine analyze this, analyze that kind of things. He is like, I am doing something totally new every time. And if it takes him 10 years, well, that that's fine. And I, I think it also takes all of Glazer's movies 10 years before people seem to give a shit about them. Um, hmm. Like I, I feel all of his movies take a while to age into the culture, which um, I think that's a sign of a good movie. It takes a while for everyone else to catch up to it. Yeah, I would hope that he would take the Denis Villeneuve route, you know, because, I mean, he that guy has been churning out some great films that aren't, that sort of, I don't know if they necessarily have, com- yeah, they have commercial qualities, but something like Enemy, you know, I... I think that film in of itself is kind of a miracle that it was made with the star and that, you know, people overall got to see it. Maybe more of the cinephile art house crowd got to see it and had a response to it, much like Under the Skin. Um, I just, I, I would like to see Glazer to be a little bit more active, but then again, if it, if we wait 10 years and we get something on anywhere near the caliber of what? Under the Skin, that's fine. What does uh, what does Jonathan Glazer's Sicario like mm. uh, fascist American authoritarianism look like? Like, uh, um, oh my god, uh, you know what I mean? Like, I I, I feel that I feel happen. in in fifteen years, um, Sicario is going to look like the film that anticipated Brexit, Donald Trump. And everything like the attitude and execution of Sicario is pretty much bang on where we are right now. And it came out before all that shit. It was very prophetic in the same way that Starship Troopers is one of the best 9-11 movies, (laughs) even though it was made in 1997. Um, Like, how do you watch Starship Troopers (laughs) without thinking 9-11? Like, it's impossible. Yet that movie was made four years before. Now, Um, yeah, we brought that up with the Verhoeven episode for sure. Um, so Kate, your overall final thoughts on Glazer and looking forward to his next film, etc. I'm definitely looking forward to his next film. Um, a little worried he can't live up to under the skin, but <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to going back and watching each of these, including under the skin and just like waiting for them or like <laughs> to sort of unfold. Um, because I do think, I do think all of these deserve multiple watches and I know like all of us know that, but to anyone listening to this, I guess, um, I would recommend 
if you watched any of these and weren't a big fan <laughs> to go back and try it again and see what happens. Um, I do think I'm a big fan of Jonathan Glazer for that reason, um, just because all of these films are almost not overwrought. That's not the right word, but they are very dense um, and layered mm-hmm. and well, they, and they will just and sort all, of all keep giving easily labeled as pretentious on a first viewing. And then you, like you said, you dig into it a second time and you're like, okay, let's put that aside for a minute and see what's actually working right. down here. Mm. Um, and just from talking to you guys, um, you can sort of, these films hold up to like so many different interpretations. I feel like, like you don't have to go with one. They sort of um, have space for multiple at once competing sort of interpretations, which yeah. I think is amazing. Um, and also a hallmark of a great filmmaker. Um, just the more you have to work at a film, the better it is for me. So amen to that. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> and we're in the minority. I'm not back padding or, or, or whatever, but I believe we're in the minority on that, but just because we're in the minority, there's 7 billion people on the planet. The minority stole a lot of people. <laughs> Anyone listening right. to this podcast is probably also in that minority, right? Right. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a huge reason why I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for, first of all, the internet. <laughs> and then, you know, just the, the, what podcasting has done in creating its own vocal niche of cinephiles in of itself. And then being able to connect with different people, whether you have the same opinion or not, you're still sharing ideas. And that's something that I'll, I'll never stop doing. <laughs> whether if it's in person or on a podcast through microphones, through Skype or Google voice, it's, and I think, um, you know, I think Glazer is really representative of the type of filmmakers that I respond most strongly to, uh, you know, like, like a David Lynch where I, or the Coen brothers, maybe a more mainstream example of that is the rewatchability and the excitement to go back and peel, peel more layers from, Hail from Caesar, it's it's a lot better than almost everybody seems to think. That movie is. I, yeah, I agree with that. I really liked it. <laughs> yeah, I, I I liked it too. I, it's funny because like I definitely what kind of almost brought me and Patrick together was the first conversation we had um, at a house show that I was hosting was about Burn After Reading, and I wasn't mm. crazy about it on the first viewing, and he loved it on the first yeah, viewing. Yeah, I'm with Patrick on that, and yeah. that movie gets better every single time. Oh, sure. Viewing. No, now I love it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, re- you know, rewatches are just, you know, some, sometimes... It's hard, it's hard to rewatch a movie that you think you didn't like. It's easy to rewatch a movie that you love. I mean, yeah. it, it's actually challenging to say, hey, I didn't get shit or that powerfully offended me Uh, I'm going to go back with an open mind and I think all of um, Jonathan Glazer's movies want you to go back with an open mind Uh, I I think he really does want you to all three of them want you to empathize Um, not all movies want that some movies just want to watch the world burn but but this these movies uh they really do want you to say, look, put aside your prejudices or, or issues, um, at least on a second viewing <laughs> and, and, and try to put yourself, um, 
you know, in the shoes of, of uh, this gangster or this um, socialite uh, or, or this uh, otherworldly uh, worker bee <laughs> um, and, and try and step out of your normal movie experience. The fact that he, he can even do this in the mainstream, even the quasi mainstream mm-hmm. that, that, that he exists. Like what Kate was saying about movies that are open to so many uh, interpretations. That's not only a great thing, it's a fucking rare thing. <laughs> and and Lately, yeah. it's up to people in that Anton ego in Ratatouille sense to like really talk about that type of movie, because I'd hate to see those movies fade away and disappear and re- be replaced with star Wars, the force awakens, which is, a giant pile of bullshit. Um, <laughs> well, I can agree that it's pandering, but I still find it reasonably entertaining. Yeah. I know you don't, but <laughs> I, it's just, it, it closes your mind. It's like, let's just redo what we did before with different people in the hero roles. Yeah. That's the wrong way to do it. That's JJ Abrams in a nutshell. Every, super eight. It's why I dislike that <laughs> filmmaker, but Glazer is the opposite of that. He's like, I'm doing something so different. Mm-hmm. You don't even have the framework to understand what I'm doing until you watch it once. And some people and are really put off by that. It's weird. I, I don't understand why in life you would close your mind to new experiences. And, and imp- like it, there was a thing when I used to constantly rove video stores and it used to drive me nuts. I would watch other people browse for movies. <laughs> oh, no. Because um, I'm, I'm usually just in to look through the bins, right? And, and get the like the used gems or whatever. I don't, eh, but I would be watching other people rent and you generally, you'd have couples, particularly couples, like forget about the kids thing, but couples. And the, the, the guy would go, well, what about this movie? Oh, I've heard bad things about that. He puts it on the shelf and then she picks up the movie. What about this movie? Oh, I, I don't even know that. I've never seen that movie before. And then she puts it back on the shelf and then they pick up the movie that he picked up that they know, but they've heard bad things about and they rent that. And I'm like, why wouldn't you take the chance on the one you know nothing over the one you've heard bad things about? Like, at the very least, you stand a better shot at the complete unknown than the, oh, yeah, this is 40. Not so great. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I but that's human psychology. You you would rather be reserved the, yeah. the, the Something familiar, familiar thing than, uh, than, than take a chance uh, on that. So I'm happy that Glazer even if he only makes one every 10 years now uh, is out there, you know, film festivals, I guess, serve this poor purpose now. Cause it, it happens sure. so rarely in the mainstream outside of like a David Fitcher or a Christopher Nolan or a Kelly Reichert. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, filmmakers that get sizable budgets with, with uh, you know, reasonably well-known actors and are able to do somewhat different, things yeah um, no definitely glazer is the anti you've got mail and uh i think we need more of that we need more cha- i mean that's kind of why i mean i know a lot of people have a divisive reaction to uh arrival but i feel like that is the nice happy medium yeah uh, and even even to some extent midnight special although i can understand people having reservations with how that movie plays out but for me that also has that nice balance of let's give the audience what they want, but let's also challenge them a little bit to think about humanity as a whole and what it all means. And 
asking bigger questions, I guess. You know, and I think that, uh, yeah, I think I can respect and respond to a Kelly Reichardt or a Jeff Nichols movie with the simplicity of its storytelling just as much as what uh, Denis Villeneuve is doing. So I'm, I'm just hoping that that can continue. I mean, even if 2016 overall has been a fairly weak year, there are I still disagree. some... I, 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 I disagree. I think 2016 has been a fabulous year for movies. They mm. just haven't been playing in the multiplex. And I would argue that it's pretty much <laughs> it's pretty much it's pretty much the same for every year. I mean, there are the occasional like hyper exception, like 1999 or 2007 or 1972. But for the most part, every year is a fucking amazing year for movies. Uh, they just deep. you just have to find the right movies um like i i don't know i'm i was making my top 10 for the end of this year and i'm like fuck it's hard to boil it down to 10 um i i i don't i don't see that as being i don't see that as being a major problem uh this year but again you got to do so much work to find the uh, the good films, like, like everybody should do themselves a favor and find the Polish vampire musical, the lure and seek it out. Like I, and, and one thing that Glazer did with under the skin Villeneuve is done with arrival and hopefully does with blade runner is to make a transcendent picture mm-hmm. in a genre package. Right. That's very, it's easy to make, and um, I, okay, I say this very facetiously because I'm not a filmmaker, but it's easy to make an Amour or a Leviathan, and by Leviathan I mean the Russian one. Right. Um, you know where it's a it's a it's a an abstruse, difficult art film. It's hard to make. I think it's harder to make something in the framework of a genre and make it fully transcend. Which is why we remember so many of the. Uh, which is what Kubrick did with almost every single you know, horror picture, period drama, um, you know, youth run amok genre, yeah, like a, almost every war film. He, he takes what is a normal framework and really transcends it. Um, and I don't know where birth fits um, uh, into that, but certainly sexy beast and under the skin are, are comfortably within it's easy for the marketing departments to pitch those movies. It's a much harder yeah. for the audience to then get into the movie and go, shit, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Um, and, right. It's, uh, it's, it reminds me of the audience reaction to George Clooney and Solaris. <laughs> Solaris is a great, great example of that. And I would argue that despite it being a period Polish vampire musical, um, the lure completely transcends perhaps what your expectations might be of what that is. Um, well, I've never heard of it. So I'm going to, it's, yeah, I'm gonna it's look that up. pretty amazing. Um, and uh, first time filmmaker. So this is like her nice. sexy beast. Uh, so first time filmmaker, music video director. Um, and, uh, and I think one of the two lead mermaids, there's two women uh, is going to be, in 20 years, like an Isabel Hubert or Catherine Deneuve or, um, uh, that's good. You know, Juliette Binoche, like that. You can see it. Uh, like when you watched winter's bone the first time and you're like, Holy shit, that woman will be a movie star. Like there, there's, there's no question in that film, whether you like the film or not, that you look at a certain actress and you're like, okay, 
Um, I feel the same way with Elle Fanning in uh, um, in Super 8, a movie I hate, but she's transcended in. Uh, somewhere, a movie I love, yeah. she's also bloody fantastic. And then The Neon Demon, which I fucking adore beyond know, words, yeah. and she's amazing. So, uh, yeah, I'll stop talking now. That's okay. Any final thoughts, Kate, before we wrap up? Mm, no, not not that I can think of. Um, has there been anything that you've seen recently that has really stood? I know you saw uh, the, Handmaiden. the Handmaiden. Yeah, that's been like rocking my world <laughs> ever since. Um, I gotta see that still. Yeah, everyone should see the Handmaiden. Yeah, I know the uh, uh, one of the Korean actresses in that film. She might even be the lead is in a movie that I just saw called Right Now, Wrong Then. Oh, that's such a good movie. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Made me no, so happy. Uh, do, you, do you like Hong Sang-soo as a filmmaker? I have to see more, apparently. Um, he's, he's Korea's Woody Allen without the, without the creepiness. Um, but he makes one movie every year. It's kind of the same movie, but he has a new way of making that movie every sure. time. And it's, okay. he's amazing. He's got about to see more than 20... More. 20 films you should just marathon that shit it's delightful great yeah, yeah. well well guys thank you so much for being on the show once again today and you will definitely be making return appearances each uh next year and i you know in the spirit of thanksgiving i am thankful and grateful for knowing both of you and i really appreciate you sharing your thoughts today um on jonathan glazer well I'm pretty thankful for your audience for picking Jonathan Glazer. <laughs> I, when you said that you put out a poll, I'm like, oh boy, here we go. A poll is generally doesn't yield the response that you expect. Uh, and this in a delightful way, I would never have expected people to pick like on a public poll. I, I guess it's a testament to your, uh, to the, your core listenership that they're... They surprised me, though. That would, if it's the Director's Club, pick a friggin' crazy auteur and run with it, eh? Right, exactly. I mean, the last time so I did a listen, the last time I did a listener's poll, it was Catherine Bigelow. So... That's equally good, though. Who is she up against? I can't remember. <laughs> that was a long time ago. <laughs> I wonder if I have that, like, old poll in an email or something, but, yeah, that's... But, but, but Bigelow is in the same thing. Bigelow always works in genre, but she does something right. totally like whether it's near dark or zero dark 30 or a movie without dark in the title point break. Um, she, she always delivers something that other people in that genre don't deliver. Like she always brings something totally different to, to, yeah. to the and project. And her take so. on sci-fi with strain days. is pretty pretty special. yeah it's right. it's pretty good yeah so kate where can we uh read more of your work or follow you on the internets <laughs> well i have a twitter that's true. um it's so selective underscore kate um i do write for tiny mixtapes i have a couple reviews pending for them right now that should be hitting the web soon um i blog at selectiveviewing.com um, not as much as I'd like to, <laughs> I should work on picking that up, but those, those are my main, main venues. So and you can follow Kate on letterboxd as well. That's right. Letterboxd. I just got a letterboxd. I'm a always excited to see 
you and uh, your partner's ratings. They, I'm always excited to see that, especially see Maureen. How different they are. <laughs> when I when I see Maureen giving like Synecdoche, New York, one star, I I love getting angry for a little bit. <laughs> oh, yeah. She's I don't picking. like that movie either. <laughs> oh my gosh, we're gonna have to have a no, whole. T- I, no, 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 no. I, I just, I just gonna throw your advice at you, or, or as our friend uh, Ryan McNeil would say, uh, watch it again. <laughs> watch it again. All right. Mm-hmm. Yes, please. So, <laughs> Kurt, any other places we can seek you out besides row 3com of course. Uh, yeah, that's where the podcast uh, is, or you can watch me complain about Marvel trailers, which I'm sure you don't want to do. Uh, you can most of my interviewing and uh, festival uh, writing can also be found on ScreenAnarchy.com, uh, um, and I do a lot of these micro podcasts now, where oh, we yeah. recap um, older shows as if they were like the way the modern world recaps things. So uh, with Nat Elmerall from uh, Where the Long Tail And so we've done uh, Pride and Prejudice, the 1995 BBC uh, miniseries. We've done The Prisoner, um, the 1960s uh, weird sci-fi um, uh, spy uh, series. And um, we did I Claudius. We like, our, we like our British TV. Um, we did I Claudius, the, uh, the 1970s uh, British one. And uh, f- so all three of those can be found at, at where the long tail ends. Um, and we're doing Blackadder uh, coming up. Um, oh, I'm in- not familiar with that one. Blackadder, it's uh, Rowan Atkinson. Everyone seems oh. to know Mr. Bean, but uh, yeah. Blackadder is his historical farce that he they they made a season. Um, like they they advance through history. They keep all the actors and they uh, they kind of parody um, British society and and oh, and narcissism and and whatnot. It's a lovely British cult comedy. Um, yeah, and. Uh, it, that's pretty much it. I have Twitter, but I don't really use it. I, I, I'm it's it's at Triflick. Sometimes I, I mainly use it for direct messaging. So if you want to say <laughs> if you want to yell at me, um, you can do it in public or in private uh, on Twitter. My preferred social media is is Instagram. So I'm uh, slash Triflick T R I F L I C, and uh, you can not hear me. You can just look at my photography. <laughs> um, that's uh, that's good Instagram. advice. That's yeah. really good advice. No, don't listen to me. That's good advice. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure. I mean, it's like, uh, I think nowadays Instagram is the place to go to avoid any politics as well. It is. It, it is a, it is a, um, anger agnostic. I, I've never seen a, a fight break out on Instagram. Um, I mean, I suppose <laughs> the world has to deal with the Kardashians on Instagram and that's its only sort of devil's bargain but uh otherwise instagram's a pretty nice uh happy place compared to other forms of social media for the most part you you will get sleazy dudes commenting on female celebrities photos and being jerks oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's that's been so far like the only major downside i've seen but certainly not enough to uh cause the kind of stir that Trump has. But, but letterbox seems to be, I, I, I started with letterbox and then I, I felt I was writing so many reviews for other websites that I didn't have time to like invest the writing energy to a kind of a, a space that is, but it seems that I'm like everyone else I know is, has 
join their communities inside of Letterbox. I, so I feel like I'm on the outside uh, looking in with that platform. Maybe I'll have be, to. You, you could just be lazy like me and just raid everything. Um, I don't oh, just, just, just the. Oh, well, that, that's part of the reason why I bailed out of Letterboxd. I know you're not a big I fan don't of that. Like, I, I don't that. like assigning stars to anything. I, I just like I to talk about the movies. But, but Letterboxd has a very good conversational people write oh, sure like sure. when i people link to me like oh you should see what this guy wrote and they're like wow that is like publishable that is fully yeah. top shelf proper invested writing on there so who knows right. i'm really impressed with the caliber of writing on letterbox yeah. mm-hmm. and just like from Absolutely. random people that's one of the things i like about it yeah and that's again one of those like really positive things to uh celebrate where things like the imdb uh reviewing and the Ugh. rotten tomatoes reviewing are just cesspools uh but letterbox seems to have taken the high road at least in in the few circles i've been exposed to um i hope it stays that way <laughs> so for the next episode it may be a whole month until i return alongside friend and guest who was just on the last episode for peter bogdanovich um, Mr. Bill Ackerman will be returning as we talk for probably three hours plus um, about our favorite films of 2016, as well as the year that was 2016. Um, I'm going to be binge-watching as much as I possibly can, trying to go to the theater a lot, seeing some screenings. Um, so yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun as always. Uh, a little bummed that Patrick is not participating but i'm getting over that it's fine <laughs> i gotta respect his choice and bill ackerman is going to do a great job as he usually does um and i'm also getting ready to launch a revised version of pop culture club my interview show it's going to have a new name a new look a new site and it's going to be better than ever is my hope so you know and it's it's also a reason for me to connect with not just names like Keith Gordon or Alan Moyle, which I'm very proud of those interviews. I'm planning on interviewing friends and family and talking about what's on our minds as of late, because I think we need to stay connected, talk to each other more and, you know, just simply keep each other warm in the winter months. So we'll see how all that pans out. Uh, please visit directorsclubpodcast.com. Send me an email to, to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. So there may be a bonus episode in the meantime, but if not, I want to wish you all a happy Thanksgiving, a Merry Christmas, and potentially a Happy New Year. And thanks again, Kate and Kurt, for being on the show. It was a blast. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, cheers. Good afternoon, good evening, good night, and good luck. <laughs>